Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Bible class. I'm Paul McCain, and a special welcome to our radio listeners. We're happy to have you join us virtually here. And to the folks here, happy epiphany to you. Happy epiphany to you. <clears throat> now the fun really gets started in the church here. We are now in, uh, starting with uh, Advent, of course, but we are now really moving into the heart of the festival half of the church here. So as you know, we're going to be hearing about all the great events in the life of Jesus. We're going to be hearing uh, about miracles. We're going to be hearing about um, the things that he did to help people understand who he was and why he had come among us. And <clears throat> I don't know what the pastor said in the sermons this morning so far, but let's talk a little bit about Epiphany. Epiphany, in some ways, is an older festival in the church year than Advent, certainly. Advent was a relatively later innovation, particularly in the West, the Western church custom, um, older than Christmas. Christmas wasn't observed until oh, about the 4th century. The East adopted the observance of, of uh, 25th, December 25th much later. But in the East, particularly in the Eastern Church, it was the observance of the baptism of Jesus, which is what our lessons are about. Next Sunday, we will observe the baptism of our Lord. Today, we talk about the epiphany of our Lord, the word epiphany comes from a Greek word, a noun form, epiphanein, which means to show forth, to manifest, literally for light to shine out or on something, from phaneo and epi, to shine upon. Uh, I was reading, <clears throat> one person put it very well. Epiphany is the supernova of Christ's revelation to the world. Not many people knew about the fact that he had been born, okay? Well, except for the shepherds and Mary. Um, there was a big celebration, but it was very localized, okay? But when the wise men show up, that's a signal to all of us, and they came later. Jesus, at that time, by that time, they had been able to find a house and move into it. When the wise men showed up from the east, this was a signal that the revelation of Jesus Christ, the appearance of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his birth, was for all the world, Jew and Greek. You know, chosen people and the aliens, because these quote-unquote wise men um, had come in from somewhere in the east. We don't know where exactly. And there's all kinds of, uh, as you know, mythologies that there were three. We don't know there were three. There were three gifts mentioned, so three. But they developed this whole kind of, as always, things kind of took a left turn when they developed more focus on trying to figure out who these guys were. And they, they were even given names and, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, we three kings of Orient are. They weren't kings. I don't know where that came from. Um, so you talked about that. We talked about that in today's worship. I'm looking forward to today's worship service because, uh, as usual and traditionally, we get to sing on this day one of my favorite hymns. I won't say my favorite hymn because every time I do, I realize I have lots of favorite hymns. But, Oh, Morning Star, How Fair and Bright by Philip Nikolai. A great, great, great hymn of the church. Um, that's fantastic. But today, we're going to prepare ourselves to observe the baptism of our Lord next Sunday, which, as I said, 
was a very ancient celebration in the church. The, the church early on, St. Paul even mentions observing the Passover feast. Uh, the Pasch talks about Christ as our Paschal Lamb. So we know early on in the church, even in the first century, they were observing the death of Christ, the Holy Week, all the events. And then from there, they went backwards in time a little bit. And the baptism of Jesus, still to this day in the East, is, Epiphany in the East is kind of a catch-all observance. They talk about the visit of the, of the Magi. They talk about the baptism of our Lord. They talk about his first miracle in Cana. You can find reference to this in the early church. So it's just good to know, and I love being a part of a historic church body that observes the historic Christian church year. It really helps us anchor ourselves in the scriptures and receive the full benefit of walking through all the great events of the life of Jesus, all for us. So... <clears throat> What I'm going to do today, <clears throat> we will go over the lessons for next Sunday, and then I'll briefly comment on them, and then we're going to spend our time today just reviewing the doctrine of holy baptism and how it particularly flows out of these lessons. So our first lesson for next Sunday, the baptism, baptism of our Lord, is from Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 to 9. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, Yahweh, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. Or again, in Hebrew, I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. There's that epiphany theme. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness, I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Well, <clears throat> this is just filled with references to what this day is all about. Particularly, I am Yahweh, I have called you in righteousness. There's that theme of righteousness, which is pervasive through the Holy Scriptures. Why? We are unrighteous. We need the Lord God Yahweh himself to be our righteousness. We need, hint, hint, somebody to come and stand in our place. Now keep that thought in mind. To stand in our place and to fulfill all righteousness for us. Jesus Christ stands in our place and fulfills all righteousness for us. From the moment of his conception until the final breath he took on the cross, everything he did was done for you in your place, for your salvation. Let's jump to the gospel lesson right away because the Old Testament 
lesson really is particularly key to the gospel lesson, although today we have the pleasure of having the epistle lesson fit perfectly as well into the theme of the of this day, next Sunday, the baptism of our Lord. But the gospel lesson tells in pretty, you know, brief words here, just a short paragraph about the baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, and here comes my paraphrase to capture the the sense of the Greek. No way. I need to be baptized by you. What, you're coming to me to be baptized by me? No way. Okay, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? You get the force of the Greek because the Greek didn't need to use personal pronouns at this point because in Greek the verbs perfectly communicate who's saying what to whom. But for emphasis, these pronouns pop up, I, you, me. John's incredulous. He's flabbergasted. He's gobsmacked. Jesus. By the way, the name Jesus hadn't been mentioned since the account of his birth when Joseph told what his name's going to be. But Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to, we should add, his cousin, John. John knew who Jesus was to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him. He wasn't willing to do it. He wanted to put a stop to it. No way, Jesus. I need to be baptized by you. But Jesus answered him and said, let it be so now, or let it happen. Don't stop this, John. It's got to happen. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Okay. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, that's one of Matthew's favorite words. You know, in Mark, you're always getting this breathless sense of action. And immediately, and immediately, and immediately. If you read Mark, you see that word over and over and over again. In Matthew, he likes to use the word behold, or in the Greek, idu. Behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That's Matthew's account of the baptism of Jesus Christ. Pretty amazing. Now, the first thing we might wonder is, why does Jesus have to be baptized. Only sinners are baptized, right? Right? Yes. Jesus joins himself to sinners. As St. Paul says in the epistles, he who knew no sin became sin for us so we might become the righteousness of God. And so that all kind of clicks when you get that point. You go, oh, I get it. By the way, the light bulb moments we talk about, what are they called? Epiphanies. So I hope today you have an epiphany about epiphany and what it means for you, particularly the baptism of Jesus. Jesus said, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Why did Jesus have to fulfill righteousness? For himself 
No, for who? You guys, or as they say where I was born, down in the heart of Dixie, y'all, or as they say in southern Illinois, you guys, you people, all of us, all of us. That's the point of the baptism of Jesus. This was the public coming out ceremony for Jesus Christ as he began his ministry. And how does he begin it? He begins it the way he continued it. And the way he ends it, fulfilling all righteousness for you. And it begins with baptism. Baptism. Ironic how that has become, uh, particularly among Protestant Christians, such a point of contention among various beliefs. The Lutheran Church is right in line with the teaching of the historic uh, universal or Catholic Church, which is all we ever claim to be. Uh, we are the continuation of the one holy Christian church on earth, the Catholic Church. Uh, we don't claim to be a splinter group from that church. We believe this is what the church teaches. And we share in common with, uh, now again, there's all kinds of nuances and difference, but by and large, our differences with Rome and the East are not over baptism. And with some of the historic Protestant churches like the Anglican Church, we're Pretty much in line with them too. We baptize babies. That's a dead giveaway. Now, some Calvinist churches baptize babies, but it's it's an odd kind of thing. It's because they believe they have to incorporate them into the covenant and on and on. I want to get into all these nuances. But here in America, the big deal among Protestant Christians, and we'll number ourselves among them, uh, properly understood, is you can't baptize babies because babies a aren't old enough to have sinned to the points they need to be baptized. And B, baptism is simply a human's response, a person's choice by free will to respond to and accept the promises of Jesus. And therefore, out of obedience, and they even call them this, to the ordinances of Christ, a person's baptized. Well, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that today because there's one thing I don't like in church is when we spend, it, it's important to point out the differences, okay? But sometimes we can spend so much time on the differences, we'd never get around to the really good stuff, which is simply talking amongst ourselves of what the scriptures reveal about holy baptism and why it's such a great blessing. Another example of this phenomena is for years, uh, because I had written a little book on the subject and it, was, it became pretty popular, uh, it seemed like every time I turned around, I was being interviewed uh, on the radio or had to write about it or I just got tired of it. Uh, who can't take Holy Communion? I was, I am. I'm, I'll admit it, I'm pretty good on the subject. I've done it so much. Closed Communion, explaining the whole thing. And I realized, you know, I am tired of talking about who can't take Communion. I'd rather spend more of my time talking about the blessings of Holy Communion for those who are able to receive it. So here, we're just going to, yeah, we'll indicate the differences and just say, fine, and I'll be happy to answer questions if you want to talk about, about that. But what I would rather do is help us grow in our understanding of the blessing of holy baptism. The first way I want to do that is by asking you, just set aside the word sacrament for a moment, okay? Don't just forget about that. Baptism, we don't need a category called sacraments to understand baptism. In fact, that sometimes gets in the way. 
And I'll give you a great example of that. Well, uh, if my sins are forgiven in confession and absolution, then why do I need baptism? And if all my sins were forgiven when I was baptized, why do I need confession and absolution? I hear this more often than not. Um, well, uh, why do we have to take Holy Communion if our sins are already forgiven at the beginning of the service when we have confession? And this is because people, and rightfully, in some ways rightfully so, but uh, we've, allowed a, we've allowed a category to drive our understanding of the things Scripture reveals. So for now, let's just sit back and revel in what God reveals in his word about baptism. What it is, what it gives, who's it for, and what does it mean for us? We don't need to explain it first by talking about the doctrine of the sacraments. Okay? And once you kind of break your mind free of this category, you begin to, you begin to understand the promises that God in his word reveals about baptism are for everyone of every age all through their life. Now you're ready to hear St. Paul talk about baptism. What shall we say then, Romans 6? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. The Greek is very forceful there. It, 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 you can even hear it in the words. Meganoita. Two words. No way. By no means. That's crazy talk. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us, all of us, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, and of course we have, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. And alive in Christ Jesus. And this entire commentary from 5, verse 5 to 11, is anchored on this assertion. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Period. That's true. Always. Baptism is what baptism is. Baptism gives what baptism gives. So don't allow yourself to fall into the trap of thinking, well, haven't I received enough grace? Haven't I received enough, enough forgiveness? I don't need necessarily to receive more because I already got it. I, our minds allow us to play these games. And when we do that, we miss the joy and promise of simply what God reveals. Paul doesn't qualify anything he says about baptism. We do. We want to. We try to. He doesn't say, 
Uh, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into, into his death. Uh, but of course, for those who haven't been baptized as babies, this comes later because they first came to faith in Jesus through the proclamation of the word and therefore baptism, blah, 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 blah. No. There's simply this assertion about baptism. Baptism even now saves us. Okay? Period. No qualifications given whatsoever. Yeah, except in the case of those who have already come to faith before they were baptized. And therefore, you know, now I grant those are all valid questions. But free yourself from the temptation to try to sort too finely everything the Word reveals into categories that might be convenient for your human reasoning. But here there is no qualification whatsoever given anywhere in the Holy Scripture when it talks about baptism and the gift of the Holy Spirit. How much of the Holy Spirit do you receive in holy baptism? All of him. How many gifts of the Holy Spirit do you receive in holy baptism? All of it. All of them. All of them. All of him. All of them. All of it. All the time. All for you. Period. Once you get that set, and it took me a while in my life because I'm by nature kind of a systematic theologian. I, I love studying theology when it's nice, categorized, neatly classified, and all the Bible verses are plugged into where they all fit. That's, that's a wonderful thing. But in the process, you can kind of miss the power and force of what scriptures reveal about baptism. <clears throat> so I will pause there questions. Any questions at this point? No. One question. Yes, sir. Yes. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. We believe baptism. The scriptures teach. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Period. When we are in the death of Christ, we receive all the benefits of that death. When we confess our sins and receive absolution, we receive all the benefits. God is always giving. God loves to give. God loves to create. He created. He loves to create anew. Baptism is one of the ways he does that. Oh, absolutely. That's what we mean. When we say means of grace, and here again, that's a great phrase to use, but it can be said so quickly and thoughtlessly, we don't really understand what we're saying. If you receive God's grace, you are receiving salvation. Okay? There is no grace apart from salvation. And you get it all, all the time, all for you. That's what God loves to do. What's God's chief attribute in the Holy Scriptures that's revealed to us? Love, mercy, grace, salvation, forgiveness, giving people righteousness. And this is where I differ with my Calvinist friends who seem immediately always to want to talk about the sovereignty of God. Okay? So what? He can be sovereign and I can still go to hell. But God is love. That's his chief virtue and attribute is love. Everything he does is motivated by that. So that, that's a good question. Yeah, when we say means of grace, we're saying means of salvation. Because uh, forgiveness, life, and salvation, 
Those three words go together. And for uh, what I also like to say and remind ourselves is, there is never a word of gospel that is not a forgiving word. In other words, um, can you ever speak, you know, is the gospel anything other than the good news of our salvation, which is our forgiveness, purchased in one force by Jesus Christ on the cross? That's why when you hear people use the word gospel, but sadly, you can't assume they're using it as the scriptures describe it. Gospel means good news, but it's not any good news. I mean, you know, helping a person who's poor is not the gospel. It's a wonderful act of charity. It flows from our reception of the gospel. But we've got to be careful when we hear people talking about gospel. Don't assume they're actually talking about what the scriptures reveal about what the gospel is. It's good news. Okay, with that having been said, um, let's turn to just an overview of holy baptism. And we'll probably get this in church next week as well, but that's okay. Because what's the old saying? Repetition is a mother of learning. Repetitio mater studiorum est. It never helps when you're bored with something, but it sounds good. So let's not get bored with this. Martin Luther did such a wonderful job in the small catechism. Next to the Bible, there's been no greater book written. And I say that without any hesitancy, embarrassment, fear of being contradicted. I'm old enough now that my opinions are so set, I just know I'm right. And like... Uh, John Adams said, I thank God that he gave me the gift of being stubborn when I know I'm right. <laughs> well, I am stubborn on these points. The catechism is the greatest thing written uh, after the Bible. Baptism. Listen to this brilliant definition. Baptism is not just plain water, but it is the water included in God's command combined with God's word. What is that word of God? You know it. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the new explanation of the small catechism that was published a few years ago by the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, is fantastic. It is so great. If you don't have it yet, you can buy a copy of this new edition of the small catechism with explanation. I wish I would have had it when I was teaching confirmation as a pastor. Here's a th they put these central thoughts in, and by the way, in my opinion, the best part of the new explanation published by the Missouri Synod are the explanations of baptism, Lord's Supper, uh, confession, and absolution. Come to find out the chief drafter of this section was Professor John Pless. He does such a wonderful job. I had to drag that out of him, but he finally admitted, yeah, yeah, I wrote most of that. Baptism is from God since our Lord Jesus instituted baptism. Now, here's an interesting thought. When did Jesus institute baptism? Well, we always say Matthew 28 is where he really, you know, the last word was go make disciples by preaching the gospel and having them come forward to make a decision for me. Nope. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
teaching them everything I've commanded you. But one could argue rightly, and understood correctly, Jesus Christ instituted Christian baptism by receiving it himself. He stood in our place to fulfill all righteousness. There's some debate among commentators. Is the main thrust of the baptism of Jesus to teach us about our baptism and why we should be baptized and why we can be baptized? I would answer yes. But is the main teaching of the account really to show us that right from the beginning Jesus was standing in our place to fulfill all righteousness for us? My answer to that is yes. It's yes and yes. It's not either or. But it is, a, it is a thing to really pay attention to, the significance of Jesus fulfilling all righteousness. So if he was baptized, maybe it's a good idea for us to be baptized. And if he sanctified the water of holy baptism through his own baptism, he prepares it for us as well. It's not simple water, okay? At the time of Martin Luther, the people, and I'm going to break my policy, the people uh, known as Anabaptists, which literally means to be baptized again, were running around telling Christians, your baptism as infants doesn't count because you weren't old enough to know what you were doing. You weren't old enough to have made a verbal assent. Therefore, you need to be baptized again. So they were, became known as the Anabaptists. Just so happens, centuries later, of course, the largest Protestant church in the United States is known as the Baptist Church, which is so ironic because they reject what the Bible teaches about baptism. But that's enough said. So, baptism is not simple water, but it's water included in God's command combined with God's word. And continuing, what does it mean to have a last name, a family name? When God places his name on us in baptism, what does that mean? And then there's this thought. As Christians, we are God's baptized people. We are his adopted children together with all believers, and we live and die in the confidence that he has redeemed us and we are his. Why? Because we went through a ritual known as baptism. We're going to put our faith in the physical activity of baptism. Again, take your eyes off of that and set it on the one who is doing the baptism. It's God baptizing. The pastor's hand is merely the means by which the water is applied. The pastor's mouth is merely the means by which God's word is spoken. But it is God who's doing the baptism. It's God who's reaching out. It's Jesus standing in your place. The reason I keep saying standing in your place, I can't get it out of my head, if you look at the early church's uh, paintings and portrayals of Jesus' baptism, you never see Jesus being immersed, for one thing, which is very interesting when you think about it because some churches make such a big deal that you have to be immersed, fully bodily plunged into the water. In all the ancient uh, icons or pictures of Jesus being baptized, he's standing about waist deep in the water, which probably would have been the case because where they were baptizing, it wasn't that deep. Anyway, and it's always showing John pouring water over him. But Jesus is standing there, and these icons, you see the dove descending on him, the Holy Spirit. And so he's standing in our place to fulfill all righteousness. It's just a great image. So, baptize. The word baptize. In Greek, it's baptizo. It simply means to wash with water. 
pouring, sprinkling, pouring, immersing is great. Some new churches are built with baptistries that allow for full body immersion. Uh, there's some gorgeous uh, Roman Catholic churches that have installed these beautiful baptistries in the back, and I've seen, I've seen this in Lutheran churches too. It's fantastic. But the means of the water being applied, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Luther at one time said, yeah, I wish we could, uh, you know, I wish everybody could be immersed in baptism. Uh, in the Greek Orthodox Church, have you ever seen a Greek Orthodox baptism? Anybody's? Okay. So they take the little baby, he's com he or she is completely naked, and they swish him under the water in this big baptismal font. That's cool. That's fine. That's great. It, it plays right into the imagery of Romans 6, doesn't it? But nobody needs to wonder, oh, if I haven't been immersed, does that mean I've really been baptized? The, what counts is the application of water with the word. And just as a point of uh, making this clear, the word baptize is used in the Greek New Testament to refer to baptizing cups. You could dunk a cup and swish it into the water. Pots, copper vessels, and dining, dining couches. How would you immerse a dining couch? Just, you know, if someone insists on immersion, you can just say, hey, no, the important thing is water. Is there anything different about water when it's used in baptism? Water's water. Bread's bread. Wine's wine. But when it's given at the institution of Jesus Christ with the words he used, it becomes something even more. God's word and command are added to it. And that's why in his large catechism, Luther even uses the expression, it becomes a divine water. Now, how many of you have been to a Roman Catholic baptism? Anybody? Surprises me. Really? Well, you're just not as friendly as we are then, because we, we've been to Roman Catholic baptisms. So there. I was shocked when I went to my first Roman Catholic baptism. I had never seen one. I went to Roman Catholic high school, so I was used to seeing the Mass, literally ad nauseum for four years every week. But that was interesting. Um, whole other story there. But well, I was surprised and shocked at a big part of a Roman Catholic baptism at the very beginning is guess what? They bless the water. They make the water special. They make it holy water so that then the water can be used to baptize a child. Uh, there's a history behind all that. I won't go into it. I can explain it. I can rationalize it. I know why they do it. But at the end of the day, that's ridiculous. Water's water. Simple water only. So who instituted baptism? Jesus. Do you want to talk about why babies are baptized? Okay. Because they're sinners and they need Jesus sooner than later. Any questions? Good. We baptize babies. Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, this is St. Peter, every one of you in the name of Jesus, except for anybody under the age of 12 who is unable to make a decision for Jesus and whose sins really haven't added up to enough to be baptized. Does it say that? No. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. No qualification. For the forgiveness of your sins. How often do you need to be forgive, forgiven? All the time. Can you ever have too much grace? No. 
Can God love you too much? Too often? Too strong? Too emotionally? No. You've all heard pastors say this. How many times in your marriage should you tell your wife you love her? On the day you were married, and that's it? No. All the time. That's like God. Interestingly, what is the church? Church is the bride of Christ. How often does Jesus tell his bride he loves her? All the time. And then this is a great line. The promise, this promise is for you and for your children, except babies. Nope, don't say that. Your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls. Babies need Jesus too. Let's talk more about the blessings of baptism. Listen to this again, just this assertion. Colossians 1, 13 to 14. We've heard Paul explain baptism in Romans 6. Colossians, he says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Fortunately, God just doesn't stop at making declarations, but gives us actual tangible means by which we can say, hey, that's for me, personally, individually. I've been baptized into Christ. I've been baptized into Christ. I've been buried with Christ Jesus by baptism into his death. I've been raised to newness of life. Jesus' body and blood is given to me. He shed it on the cross. Gave it up on the cross, but it's given to me personally. Colossians 2, 11, listen to this. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. St. Paul repeating himself, Colossians 2, without qualification, without condition, just latch onto these promises. And sir, to your point, does baptism save? Well, what does scripture say? 1 Peter 3.21, this is, again, just listen to the words, don't qualify or condition them. St. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.21, baptism which corresponds to this, that is Noah's flood, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Wow. Again, no qualification, no condition. Paul, uh, Peter here isn't trying to say, well, when we consider the category of sacrament, we will now take up the doctrine of baptism, which is a subset of baptism, or as we would prefer to call them, the means of grace. That's all good, but it can rob us of the power of Scripture alone. Scripture, the bare Scripture, so powerful. Baptism, which corresponds to this, Noah's flood now saves you not as removal of dirt, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. And here's one of my favorite verses of all. Titus 3, 5 to 7, which is a key proof text for holy baptism. Just listen to this. Listen to what Paul says. 
He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul just mixes everything up together there without distinction, without qualification. What a comfort. He's not speaking figuratively when he refers to the washing of regeneration. He's referring to holy baptism. This is the same guy who wrote what he did in Romans 6. This is an even greater explanation, though. And again, it's one of the proof texts that Martin Luther uses in the small catechism. But just look, he saved us, not because of works, but because of his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Greek there uh, for regeneration, uh, it, it, this, regeneration comes from the Latin, which is a very good translation of the original Greek. But the original Greek uh, literally translated means through a new creation, a recreation, polygenesia. And when you hear the Greek word polygenesia, you hear the word genesia, which guess what word that is? The first book of the Bible is Genesis. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, he created. In Jesus Christ, he recreates. And he gives it to you in the washing of recreation and renewal to be made new again. God is always making everything new. Remember, epiphany means that supernova of revelation. When Christ Jesus came into the world and when he was revealed in an epiphany season, we'll be talking about kind of like more and more revelation. He was as if being baptized in front of witnesses and hearing God himself say, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. As if that wasn't enough, he turns water into wine. We'll hear about his first miracle in Cana. The ultimate revelation, of course, comes at his resurrection. But I love Titus 3. Oh, here's a question, and this is getting to my point. If Christ has already won full forgiveness and salvation for us, why do we need baptism? Now, you may not be, oh, actually, kids do, because uh, they're so honest. You might not be bold enough to say that, but you thought it. We think it sometimes. Come on, don't you? Christ has indeed atoned for the sins of the whole world, the whole world, not a part of the world. He has reconciled the world to himself, 2 Corinthians 5, through baptism. Here's the point. He gives to you personally the forgiveness of sins that he acquired for all humanity. As such, baptism is a means of grace. There you go. Luther, in the small call articles, has a great explanation of the means of grace, the means of salvation. Um, he says, God is so super abundantly rich in mercy that he gives us his grace and mercy and salvation in a variety of ways. Sure, God could just have told you once in your life, I love you, that's good enough for you now. Go be a good Christian. But he doesn't leave it at that. He's always forgiving. And is baptism simply a static event in the past or from the past in your life? This is another mistake I make, we make. 
and I'll blame again in some way, some measure, our pension to want to have everything nice and neat and sorted out. Baptism happened to me, in my case, on February 24th, 1962. That was then, this is now, what difference does it make? This is why I began the class by saying, don't allow yourself to fall into that trap. When you read what scripture says about holy baptism, that's true for you right now, no matter when you were baptized, no matter how many years ago. Those promises are as true for you now as they ever have been. God gives you his Holy Spirit. He gave you, he gives you, he's given you, he will give you his Holy Spirit to preserve and sustain you until life everlasting. That's why, I don't know what we say now at the end of Holy Communion. Um, I just don't have it memorized. But, and now may this, the true body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, keep you, preserve you in the true faith until life everlasting. Go in peace. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Good news. <clears throat> so, where are these blessings of baptism actually received? In baptism, we are adopted as children of God. We're made one with Jesus Christ. When you're made one with Christ, you've got it all. You become his brother. You become his brother. And if you become his brother, you become an heir of everything Jesus has. He gives to you. Galatians 3.27. Here's another great passage. Again, just hear it. Don't condition it. Don't qualify it. Don't try to explain it right now. Just receive it and enjoy it. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Or we could say Christ has been put on you. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is no male in, or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So Paul goes all the way back to Abraham. It was promised that his descendants would be more numerous than the stars he could see in the sky. And baptism connects us to all that. 1 Corinthians 12, for as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, here it is again, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of the same spirit. Is this figurative language? Paul knows exactly what he's saying, and we should too. To drink is to receive the Lord's blood in the sacrament. So, it's just great stuff. Okay, I should ask and answer. Is it possible for an unbaptized person to be saved? Yes, the thief on the cross was saved because faith was created by the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of Jesus. So, yes, baptism isn't, isn't uh, absolutely requirement, required for salvation. Fine, good, love it wonderfully comforting to people who are deprived of baptism. But I'll tell you something. The early church understood baptism so clearly and so powerfully that in those situations where a person was martyred for the faith before he or she had been baptized and literally had come to Christ through the preaching of the word, preaching of the gospel, 
a means of grace, that person was regarded to have been baptized in blood. Now think about that for a minute. They valued baptism so highly rather than try to say, well, of course, baptism isn't absolutely necessary, which is true. They chose to refer to this situation as a baptism in blood. They didn't get away from baptism. They valued baptism so highly they were trying to say, well, they weren't baptized, but in this confession of faith publicly in front of everybody, their blood, in a way, could be regarded to be the baptism. Now, it's a pious way of putting it, but I get my point. They didn't shy away from the power of baptism. They rather, they didn't do what we like to do. Oh, you don't have to be baptized. They just said, well, of course, unfortunately, they weren't able to be baptized, but we know by God's grace, they've been received. In fact, their baptism was their blood. Just interesting difference between us then. We now, let me... uh, we got some time. This is a great explanation. So how does baptism help you in your life and in your death? What difference does it make here and now and then and there? I love this paragraph. Baptism is God's work. What he does is sure and certain. Nothing is more certain in all the universe than the name that God has placed on us in baptism. The name by which God reveals himself to us, baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we have God's own pledge and promise in baptism that he has forgiven our sins and delivered us from death, hell, and the devil. In times of doubt, in times of temptation, or in times of failure, when you sin again, and especially in the face of death, you can boldly say, I am baptized into Christ. And be certain that the comforting words of Romans 8.1 are true for you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Powerful, powerful, powerful words. Let me, uh, I pulled this up. Did I lose it? Let me find it again. Next Sunday, I'm sure we're going to sing Martin Luther's great baptism hymn. Uh, To Jordan came the Christ our Lord. Yeah, here it is. This is great stuff. The first stanza. To Jordan came our Lord the Christ to do God's pleasure willing. And there was Saint and there was by Saint John baptized all righteousness fulfilling. There did he consecrate a bath to wash away transgression. And there you get that motif of by his baptism Jesus has sanctified and consecrated all Christian baptism. Um, but why? To wash away transgression and quench the bitterness of death by his own blood and passion who would give a new life to and he would give a new life to us. I'm going to skip ahead here. This is a great way of putting it, too. Stanza 4. In tender manhood, God the Son, in Jordan's water standeth, the Holy Ghost from heaven's throne, in dove-like form descendeth, that thus the truth be not denied, nor should our faith ever waver, 
that the three persons all preside at baptisms, holy labor, word for the baptismal fine, and they dwell with the believer. That We didn't talk much about that, but this revelation of the Holy Trinity at Jesus' baptism is astounding. I mean, people wondered, where does Jesus... Where does Jesus ever claim to be God? Well, I can show you multiple places he does, of course. Every time he says, I am, he's referring to Yahweh. But in his baptism. Now, the flip side of that, I should just warn you. um, In the early church, there arose a heresy that uh, known as uh, adoptionism. Adoptionism. That God uh, created this, uh, this man Jesus was born just a man, and he lived an exemplary life, and God chose him to be his son. And when do we know that, cho- that choosing took place? At his baptism. So the ancient heresy was that at his baptism, that's when Jesus got the job to be the son of God and save the world. Well, um, it was wrong. That's just not true. That's not what the Old Testament teaches. That's not what the New Testament teaches. So that heresy was rejected by the church. Obviously, <clears throat> I like this uh, stanza five. Uh, Luther talks about the Great Commission. Thus, Jesus, his disciples sent, go teach every nation that lost in sin, they must repent and flee from condemnation. He that believes and is baptized, and that's from Mark 16, one of Luther's favorite Bible verses on baptism. He that believes and is baptized shall thereby have salvation. A newborn man he is in Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans 6. From death, free, and damnation, he shall inherit heaven. The last verse, there stands there. The eye of sense alone is dim, and nothing sees but water. But faith sees Christ Jesus, and in him the lamb ordained for slaughter. It sees the cleansing fountain, red with the dear blood of Jesus, which from the sins inherited from fallen Adam frees us and from our own misdoings. So it's just a, just a great hymn. Uh, Luther wrote that to teach his people baptism. And one of the most effective ways of teaching the truth of Scripture is by singing them. Let me jump to the end here. We're almost coming up on the end. Oh, so uh, custom in the church of making the sign of the Holy Cross. In baptism, you've heard for years, um, receive the sign of the Holy Cross both on your heart, uh, upon your head and upon your breast or heart to remind you of yourself, you know, you've been saved by Christ the crucified. In the early church, as far as we can tell, the first way the Christians made the sign of the Holy Cross was on their, they would do that on their head because it was the custom in the early church when they baptized people to use oil and make the sign of the cross on their head and on their heart. So these customs are very ancient. There's nothing wrong with making the sign of the cross. You don't have to if it makes you uncomfortable because of all the perhaps superstition surrounding it. That's fine not to, but it's great to. Yes, sir. Hey, let me, let me back up. Um, we're right at the end of the time, so I don't have time to fully go into this. But let me just say this. The doctrine of election 
is always, always, always to be used as comfort for the Christian. It's not used to explain who is and who isn't going to be saved or why some and not others. But yes, holy baptism is a sign and seal of our salvation and therefore election in Christ. So I'm going to have to just let that suffice. So the sign of the cross, and finally the last question, how do we rightly use our baptism? We rightly use our baptism when we live in repentance. Live in repentance. That's a, that's a good way of putting it. Again, some people think, well, I repented then. You know, I, I repented back then. No, Martin Luther, what's the fir- very first in the 95 Theses? When Christ said repent, he's talking about the whole life of the Christian. It's a constant life of repentance. When we live in repentance and faith or trust in the triune God who has made us his beloved children. In this way, and this is a quote from the large catechism. If you like the small catechism, you'll like the large catechism even more. In this way, one sees what a great, excellent thing baptism is. It delivers us from the devil's jaws and makes us God's own. It suppresses and takes away sin and it daily strengthens the new man. It is working and always continues working until we pass from this estate of misery to eternal glory. And on that, let's conclude with prayer. Heavenly Father, you have forgiven our sins, rescued us from death and the devil, and given us eternal life by baptism into the death and resurrection of your beloved Son. Strengthen our faith so that we daily put to death all sin and evil desires, and trusting your sure promises are raised to live before you in righteousness and purity. Finally, bring us to the fulfillment of our baptism and the resurrection of the body to life everlasting through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you to our radio listeners. God bless, and we'll see you again next week.